Hello everyone and welcome to another Charity Chat Podcast. I'm your host and my name is Osman Mughal. Today I'm delighted to be speaking with Sace Holmes-Lewis, CEO at Mentivity. Mentivity is a mentoring organisation providing support to young people, schools and parents through one-to-one mentoring and group conversation-based learning with the aim to foster greater educational attainment and engagement. In this conversation, we discuss SACE's journey to becoming CEO at Mentivity and the experiences which shaped his life. How he started out coaching and mentoring young people, empowering them to develop the skills so they can not only overcome their challenges, but to achieve anything they set their sights on. SACE also shares how he's currently working with new recruits to the police force around stop and search. We explore Mentivity's current work with their Rising Aspirations project, a programme which provides a pathway for young people progressing into employment. This project is currently being supported by Goldman Sachs and is part of a longer-term relationship. We also touch on the importance of identity and how the current UK curriculum has failed many young people. Currently, students from across the United Kingdom are not being taught a diverse history consistently as part of a national curriculum, which impacts the way we view each other's history later on in life. This has to change, and this is very much part of the Black Lives Matter movement. We discuss the impact of COVID-19, and while this has come with its challenges, Mentivity has explored ways to overcome this, working digitally as many organisations have done, and has worked with young people around the world, including in Nigeria and Kenya. So without further ado, let's get into today's podcast. I'm just really interested in this podcast, particularly to understand your journey, your background, and how you came about working with young people in the community and also your current work, which I've seen on the news around um, your work with the police force and new recruits. So it'll be really interesting to touch on that as well. But before we get into that, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background, how you started um, Mentivity as founder and CEO, and in what ways you work with children and young people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably best to start from my my childhood, really. I grew up in South East London. Grew up on a, a very notorious estate called the Ellsbury Estate, which is sandwiched in between Old Kent Road, Peckham and Camberwell. Um, at one point, it was the largest housing estate in Europe. Um, and with that came a lot of issues, but also it was a great community. And there were loads of issues with drugs, uh, violence, and kind of family breakdown. But at the heart of it was a great community as well. I remember vividly going into stairwells and seeing paraphernalia and needles and things like that. And there was a, a whole generation that were, had issues with, with drug misuse. Um, but as I said, it was a massive and major community where people pulled together and um, we were all kind of in the same boat in that respect. So um, I lived in the LGBT state for 26 years of my life um, and moved to Peckham. But during my childhood, my dad left at the age of eight and that's when I had a lot of issues and, and well-documented issues with authority, especially from men in general. Um, and just trying to find my identity in a community which was pretty much very white-led in terms of culture 
um, and try to fit in, in in that. So I lived not far from Millwall Football Club. So uh, around eight or nine, I became quite aware of being a black male and the issues that that faced. And I found that in education and the different facets of life. So, um, yeah, I found football and football was what saved me. And I had set myself the target age 14 to become a professional football player. And I achieved that by the age of 19. Um, by moving to Ireland, I got a contract to move to a club in Ireland. And from there, went to Romania. Um, got a three-year contract in Romania, um, which didn't go through because of a, a bad agent. Um, so I came back here, played semi-pro. I started focusing on coaching um, and coaching is how I started working with young people. Um, then I realised I could build quite a good rapport with young people from my community through football, but also start mentoring them and giving that support. And then from there, I kind of went into education as a teaching assistant um, and unqualified youth worker and just really, really realised it was something that I loved as alongside football. So my love of football, my passion for football brought me to working with young people. Um, and when the football career, the professional football career came to an end, I was still playing semi-pro and had bad injuries, but I realised that now I need to find something else, which I love to do, which is working with young people. And um, yeah, it started off with quite, you know, entry-level roles as a teaching assistant at school. And then I went to a pupil referral unit as a PE teaching assistant, then unqualified PE teacher. Um, and then quickly from there, I moved to Southwark Council as a community sports head coach on a year-round sporting programme um, called Southwark Community Games. And that's when I really started pushing my whole personal agenda in terms of my work in the community and young people. And it's really nice you talked about, although it was a challenging upbringing, you mentioned that it was put, you were part of a great community and I think that's sometimes a point that is overlooked. You're all in the same boat and you were going through similar struggles but you were there to support and help one another. I think that's a really yeah. important point for a lot of young people. And it's really inspiring that you, although that you, you, you faced challenges when you were growing up, you were able to overcome them. And that shows a lot of mental resilience, I think. What inspired you to work with young people? Was it because you perhaps that had that lack of presence of a, a role model earlier on in your life? Do you think that's what inspired you to be that role model for other people? Yeah, I'm also the oldest of seven. So I had to be a role model for my, for my siblings as well. So And the pressures that came with that. Um, but also I kind of undertook this role as, as kind of like a surrogate father, really subconsciously with my, my, my siblings, but also with the community. And once I realised that young people kind of looked up to me and received me well, because I give them respect. I've always given young people respect and the time to speak, but I also will discipline them when the time is needed and tell them the honest truth. And I think by investing that time in young people, they understand that I'm, I have no emotional attachment to them. I have no family ties. They know I'm there for them. I'm doing it because of the love. So when you're working with young people, time equals love. When you invest time in young people, they realise that you're not obligated to be there. So I would always take that time out. And, you know, in terms of restorative practices, when we, we fell out, you know, me and the young people, I always went back and, and spoke to them about how they can improve and why it's so important. And taking it out of the school context and the wider community that if they talk to an adult in the way that they did me, they won't get someone listening to them. They're going to get either verbal abuse or maybe physical abuse in that respect you know, in terms of violence so it's just preparing them for the world and I think with my own personal experiences it was, it was important to share my story and sharing stories is powerful that underpins basic human nature and progression is sharing stories and experiences so by sharing my experiences what I've faced in my life which has been pretty unreal at times you know but I've, I've experienced some amazing things I've had some real lows but those lows you know They've allowed me to enjoy the highs, but also not to get carried away and be humble 
especially now with everything that's going on with mentivity and the organisation. But it's based on my personal experiences and seeing men in the community that try to give my that give me time and give me support it inspired me to do something and replicate what they did on on a larger basis. And it's all my life experiences and all my professional experiences has come you know to mentivity. It's four and a half years old now. And I literally set out with an idea and it's quickly snowballed into so many different things. But it's just because I'm passionate and willing to do the work. And that's why I showcase to young people and why it's so important to, to be re receptive to learning and education more informally uh, so that you can start to understand the formal kind of structure of education, how it's going to benefit you. And I really like your point there about listening to young people because often um, when we speak to young people as a community, we tend to preach to them and we don't really under listen to them or understand their concerns or what they're going through. I think that's a real vital point. Shall we get into your work at Mentivity? So do you want to share with us what the mission of Mentivity is? I know that you've touched on it a little bit, but what the mission is and the different ways you work with um, the young people at Mentivity. So yeah, in a nutshell, Mentivity is a, a aspirational mentoring service which uses inspiration and and linking the career passions of young people to their progression and what we find is that by working with the young people working with the schools working with the families through conversation based learning which we call um, which is called informal education and youth work it's about bringing those experiences together but bringing that support and getting people to understand what they can do when they work together as a collective and we really focus on the one-to-one -one mentoring and bringing up young people and then integrating them into group work settings where they can interact with other young people, share those experiences, but learn. Um, the problem that we have now in education is that learning is all about formal outcomes. It's not about the informal outcomes. No one's speaking to the soul of children. No one's inspiring young people. It's all very robotic and very just, it's very sterile. It's a very sterile environment, sterile environment which hasn't progressed you know, in 50, 60, 70 years. The same books that I read in English to the same books that young people are reading now and writing about and they don't they don't enjoy it. So for me, mentivity is an extension of my family. Mentivity is there to to shape the way that we're going to educate our young people going forward. And this is all young people. Yes, there's a there's an emphasis on black young boys and girls because of the issues that they have within education, within society. But we are inclusive and we work with young people in Brighton. Uh, we've worked with young people in Kent, um, in Edenbridge. We've even launched academies, football academies uh, in Kenya and Uganda. So it's about an inclusive approach for young people and families and something where we can share experiences and resources to, to help progress ourselves, especially from a, a, the African diaspora um, aspect in terms of our plight and the issues that we face in society. So it's just navigating that through being informed, feeling empowered and, and feeling loved. That's amazing. And the fact that you're going international with your dream as well is, is inspirational. Um, and you mentioned Kenya. My mom is actually from Kenya. And oh, wow. um, I've been to Kenya a couple of times, been to Nairobi and Mombasa and places like that. I met the children, young people. Um, and, you know, my family got a few projects out there as well. So it's really inspiring to see that you're not only working um, in the UK, but you're working internationally. And I'm just really excited to see where, where Mentivity takes you and, and to hear your passion the fact that you speak about Mentivity being your extended family and to give young people a chance because that's what I work for a children's charity in the UK and a lot of the time what young people are lacking is the opportunity. They have the potential, they have the skills, 
and they want to do well, but they're lacking the opportunity. Um, mm. And I think that's something that mentivity provides because it's not just about academic success, quote unquote academic success. It's also yeah. about the social skills. It's about leadership. It's about mm. team working. And all of those skills are more likely to make you successful in life because in whatever role you do in life, that's, those are the types of skills that you need. Communication skills is another. I just, mm. now I wanted to touch on the context in which we're discussing this topic. We see on the news quite a lot that young people are unengaged. What is your view? You know, you work with children and young people on a daily basis. You talk to them, you understand them. Mm. What, would you, what would be your message and also your message to organisations working with children and young people? I think with young people, as I said before, you have to be receptive to learning. And we have a saying of mentality, invest in yourself and you will be paid. And when we say paid, it's not via money, it's via success. Success is the most addictive thing out there. You know, and the problem that we have is that we've got this microwave culture which has been created by adults, which young people are now subscribing to based around capitalism because everything is underpinned by money. So when young people are now out there trying to make money in the most viable means, which are the streets for many young black boys and girls, because they don't have any other role models. It's over music, it's over arts, and that's it. So when you've got young boys, you speak to them, black boys in particular, what do you want to be? I want to be a rapper or I want to be a football player or I want to be some sort of sportsman. And the problem that we have is that we don't have the visibility and the representation within the wider community and the wider context of society. And this, was, this is what has led to my, the inspiration behind the Raising Aspirations project, which has been picked up now by Goldman Sachs. And we've just been invested, um, well, a six-figure sum by Goldman Sachs to run this Raising Aspirations project and as part of a long-term partnership. And what the Raising Aspirations project is doing is creating a viable pathway for young people from the demographic that I, I grew up in, in Southeast London and council estates, to actually progress into, into organisations such as Goldman Sachs in, with having a career that's linked to their passion. So they may be interested in IT or coding. There could be a role for them at Goldman Sachs. So by giving something that young people can latch onto linked to their passions, you're now going to move them away from serious youth violence or other negative kind of um, aspects of, of society. Because once you, you know, as a young person, when you are passionate about something, you link, you latch onto it. It may have been for six weeks, it may have been for six years, but you had something which you are aligned with. And that's what we don't have in society is that young people are confused because they're not given the intergenerational dialogue, which is something that we're focusing on, like mentivity, the intergenerational mentoring and education. Because what we've seen is that the family unit has been broken down, but the elderly are not in the home, elderly are in care homes. That information, that experience of what they've gone through is not passed down to the parents and to the young children. So they have no foundation or no grounding. So they don't know where they can go. When I listened to my grandparents about their experiences coming here as part of the Windrush generation, I was dismayed and shocked, but also felt very privileged that they'd gone through that to give me the opportunity. So then why would I be out there messing around doing something which is going to probably end up with me being in prison or, 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 or dead? Because I've got my identity. And this is what the problem is, is that young people don't know who they are. They're not being given the time. And all they want is our time. And because of capitalism, we've got parents that are not in the home trying to provide for their children. So then who's raising their children? Social media. So this is what we now have to disseminate. It's this whole kind of structure, this whole issue that we have in society, because we can undo this. We've got to a point now where COVID has been a leveler for so many people and we've had to slow down and it's been like a hard reset for like an iPhone pretty much where we had to look at where we're going. And this is why we're having the issues and conversations around the racism, around the whole Black Lives Matter stuff, 
because it's so important now that we have these open, this open, honest dialogue. We now must have that open, honest dialogue with children and prepare them for the future because they're going to be at the forefront of change. And organisations need to listen and consult young people. Do not have it from your point of view. Do not enforce your, your biased adult view on a child. Let them shape their future with your guided discovery. And that's something that we really push at Mentality is that guided discovery. Yes, you're going to make mistakes. And when you do, I'm here. It's just like when I coach football. Okay, this is what I want you to do. Okay, stop there. Okay, we made a mistake. How could we improve this? Right, you know, right, good. That's a good point. Well done. Okay, now let's try it again. This is what we need. Not me telling you, well, you're going to end up in prison if you don't do this. That doesn't help. It's negative. So we need to empower young people in their critical consciousness and their decision-making through informed education, through conversation. Absolutely. And it is all about empowerment, isn't it? Because you can't be there for that young person all the time for all their life. You have to right. give them the tools and the skills so when they do go out in the world and, and um, go on, to a career that they're passionate about, they're able to utilize the skills that you've provided them or helped them with um, in order to um, make best use of their talents. Yes, um, absolutely, you know, I work in fundraising and a lot of the a term used in fundraising is called co-production, working mm. with young people to devise programs that can benefit them and making sure that at every step of the way, the young person is involved in the process, the planning of the program, so they know that it's going to benefit that young person and tailored towards that young person. Because we talk as young, we talk of young people as they're one block of people, um, mm -hmm. but they're not. They're so different. They come from different backgrounds, different attitudes, um, different challenges, different circumstances. So we must be able to be quite tailored in our approach. I mean, there's something which I, I learned from youth work, which is called Hart's Ladder of, of Participation, which talks about young people being manipulated by adult and other influences. So it's almost tokenism by you're asking young people, but you're actually telling them what to do to the point where they become more critical and informed to make those decisions and feel empowered to make those decisions. And there's eight stages of that. And there's also something, another theory called Thompson's PCS theory, which is something which is very, very key in, in youth work, which talks about the personal, the cultural and the structural um, kind of levels of consciousness of young people. Once they understand themselves on the personal, they understand who they are once they, under, they identify with who they truly are, then they can start to understand what, the, what their culture says about them as a young person and where they're seen in, in wider society in terms of their family. But then we look at the structure, we start to look at government policy and all these other things. Once you understand those three rungs, then you get to a point now where you're informed and you're in a, in a place where you can actually be receptive to open, to learn, but also reflect and be accountable for your actions. And this is what it's all about with young people. It's about giving them and equipping them with the tools to succeed when you're not going to be there because I can't hold every young person's hand. It's about giving them those nuggets of knowledge and, and those key bits of information where it said, right, this is my story, this is how I did it, and I did it wrong. And that's one thing we don't do as adults. We don't apologise to our young people when we're wrong. We ask them to apologise and do all this restorative justice, but then when we're wrong, we just brush it off. As parents, we brush it off. I make sure my 13-year-old son, I apologise to him when, I'm, when I made a mistake. And it's important because they need to be accountable. And they, young people are, will be what they see. So if they see and the environment says, right, well, I'm, as a politician, I'm not going to apologize for that, or they're beating around the bush, children are not going to be accountable. And this is why we've got such a plight now of our young people and the issues that we face in society. Absolutely. And I completely agree with that point that elders sometimes don't apologize when they're wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And I think you have a lot more credibility as an adult when you do apologize because yeah. a young person will say, actually, he's apologized. Mm-hmm. I, have more, I can listen to him because he's actually acknowledging yeah. the mistake in the same way that I will acknowledge my mistake when I'm wrong too. So I think that's a really important point and, and a point to the adults out there as well. One point that you touched on is identity and mm. being proud and embracing your background and where you come from in order to give you a strong foundation on which to build on. So, you know, you, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement already. One potential criticism of the curriculum in the UK is that it doesn't focus on enough culture and rich history of black history. And how important is that in working with um, young people from the black community, for example, to understand their rich history and tradition and on which to build that foundation? Because a lot of the history that I know, I, I'm, I studied history at university, and a lot of the history that I was taught, you know, in school, in primary school, in high school, even my GCSEs, and to be honest, at A-level and also in my university, was a whitewashed history. And mm-hmm. we have to be really frank about that. Yeah, of we don't learn about black history, if at all. So mm-hmm. how important is that to understand where you come from and embrace that? It's massively important and it will underpin everything that you try to do in your life. As I said, identity is a real issue right now because young people don't have an identity it's almost a collective identity based on a kind of um an outlook which is quite skewed and negative because what young people now they're validated by social media because they're not getting the validation at home and talking about the home education should start at home i learned about black history at home i learned about the ancient egypt i learned about certain things at home and the thing is unfortunately we're in an oppressed state we're in an oppressed people and we can't depend on the oppressor to teach us about our own history and that's what the issue is is that when we look at history you know and you break down the word it's his story yeah it's from someone's perspective but there's always going to be different perspectives of one situation in history where one set of people may celebrate Churchill, other people will say, no, you know, from the Indian community, we do not subscribe to Churchill because of the famine that happened in in India under his tenure. So the thing is, is that when we have these conversations and talk about history, it needs to be challenged in an elegant way. And the thing is, when we challenge it, especially from the black community, it's always very emotional in that respect. And I understand it, but it's got to be very strategic and it's got to be done in an elegant manner so that you can have the conversations and educate other people about history as a collective. You know, it's important that we, we tell our young people the truth and we have to share books and resources and everything that we can to do that. And education shouldn't be a child educated at school is an uneducated child. That's simple as. So when you think about the formal outcomes and what schools are trying to do, it's trying to gear people towards jobs, not careers. There's only certain people that will get careers and will have those careers. But what about the entrepreneurs? You know, what about the, the people that think in a different way? What about the creatives? You know, I've always been very creative and I had to suppress that just to focus on football and not education. I love to write poetry. I suppressed that as a kid. Like I'm quite an adept poet. Like when I was young, I used to MC. Like I, I've worked so many different roles. Like people will say I'm an entrepreneur. Right, cool, I'll take it. I'm not for titles personally, but I've always known how to make money and I've moved that entrepreneurial spirit to the business world through mentality, where now we're, we bring in six figure income every year, every tax year. 
and now that we have received an investment from Goldman Sachs. So the thing that we need to do is we need to shake up the education system from within. We need to infiltrate it. We need more black males in education. Black women have been holding it down for a very long time in education and they've been holding us down for a long time. It's time for black men to step, step up as a collective and start to become educators, start to become mentors, start to showcase and also give time back to the community. And if you've made it out, come back in and provide opportunities and sow those seeds. And that's what's important for me at Mentivity. And I've always been in the community. I've always been, as young people say, as the, in the hood, because this is a product of me. This is who I am. And living on a council estate where there were so many different ways just to get to one destination, it's reflective of life. And I'm so grateful of being on, on that estate because now I approach situations from a way that, okay, I can't do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. I can't do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. So it's also having that can-do attitude and looking on the, the experience that you've had and using that to propel you forward. And education is at the heart of that, as I said. So informed education is very important. I'm going to be lobbying the government in terms of changing the way you educate young people. Having mentoring is an embedded part of the curriculum through local authorities and nationally. Training teachers in terms of conscious bias, because it's not unconscious. You have a worldview based on your perception, your stereotype, racial profile in the media, wherever it may be. You need to have those conversations as educators. To be an educator, you need to be educated. And you need to have constant education, constant, continuous professional development. And if you're not willing to do that and be open and receptive to engage those hard-to-reach young people, you're in the wrong profession. And you're absolutely right when you say that we, we must educate ourselves. And one book that I've just finished reading is The Ruins of Empire by Akala. Mm. Uh, I went to his talk about a year and a half, two years ago now, and um, was blown away. I've, I've seen his YouTube clips and his, his stuff online, but blown away by his, his knowledge, his experience, and the way he's able to speak to young people today. And mm. I would recommend everyone who hasn't read that book to read it because it really discusses the education system and how mm. it you know, does not effectively demonstrate um, the rich history um, of the black community in the UK. And I think yes. that we, we need to understand that being part of the UK, we need to take it upon ourselves to learn about that and understand that. Mm. One point that you've mentioned um, previously is the role of women in the black community. And I know that you've been quite passionate in your other um, appearances online about that. I know that you run a particular program for girls. Is that correct? At Mentivity? Yep, yep. So yeah, we, we have female mentors because when you're mentoring young women and some young women, it's more from an emotional standpoint and the support that they need emotionally um, because of the pressures that they face. You know, being a female in this world is difficult anyway. You know, there's a very misogynistic outlook to the world and in every, you know, facet of society. But then when you're black and a woman, it's almost you know, double jeopardy in that respect and it's difficult. And as I said, women in general and black women have been so strong and supported us uh, as black men for so long and we haven't supported them. So I'm not going to go in, into a school and start mentoring young girls because I don't have the same experiences. There has to be a lived experience and a shared experience. So we've got some great practitioners. Um, my young sisters as well, they're part of the, the mentoring, the female mentoring team. They're 22 and 19. We have another lady, Deanne, she's a phenomenal youth worker background, actually went to school with her and she had really good outcomes. And for me, it's, it's, we focus so much on the black boys 
that the girls seem to be pushed to one side. So we have the mentor, the female, a dedicated female mentoring program, which is important, but it's got to be an inclusive offer. As I said, it can't just be for one group. It's got to be for society, for, for the community. And the community that I've grown up in, I'm blessed to be in such a multicultural community. And I've got so many friends from different backgrounds. You know, I've got a very, very good friend of 20 years who's from Pakistan. I've got a very good friend, you know, who's white British, who's actually a police officer of 20 years. Like, I am very reflective of what I have experienced, but also I love those experiences. And I love being a black British man and a black British black man, but also how difficult it is to be a black man and achieve the things that we have on a day-to-day basis and what I've achieved personally, it's hard and people need to understand how difficult it is because you can't look at the world from just your view. And if you want to stay in your kind of cultural bubble, then fair play to you. But this is not the way the world is. This is not the way society is. And in order for us to live in a better society, in an ideal society, we need to look at things from other people's perspective at all times and understand the challenges that they go through. And I completely agree with your point around having more engagement for women because we can't rise as a community if only 50% of the community rises. We need to rise together and we need to be there to support one another economically and socially as well. Yeah. One, one point that I also wanted to touch on is about COVID-19 and the impact COVID-19 has had on mentivity on how you've continued to engage with the young people while in lockdown? Yeah, just uh, in the first five weeks of lockdown, I was depressed. I was like, it's over, mentality's over. It's a wrap. Like, I was just, I felt depressed. Um, but the thing about me is that I always look for opportunities. And we had been having discussions with Goldman Sachs in terms of what we wanted to do together. And we had planned to launch a Race and Aspirations project in uh, after Easter. So, for me now, the challenge was thinking, how can we deliver something virtually? We've got technology, let's use Zoom, let's try this. And it's been a blessing by volunteering our time. We didn't get paid for the program. We ran for seven weeks, just finished on Friday. Uh, we had 120 young people sign up. We had, I think about 15 young people actually graduate uh, for the program. And it's difficult, you know, young people are at home. Some of them are not in great situations and we've had to try and navigate that but we've had a real core group of young people that we worked with. And once we get back into the schools, this will be rolled out across two schools in South and North London uh, with Goldman Sachs. But it's been very difficult because it has a major period of reflection and we had to reevaluate where we were going as an organization. And because you know, I'm 37, my business partners, uh, Leon is 36 and my brother Tyson's 35 today. Um, we look at it from a perspective where we've always done face-to-face work, but we didn't embrace the technology, even though we're children of technology. So now we're looking now, we're having a, a mobile platform and app set up for mentivity so we can engage young people across the world. On a Raising Aspirations project we've just run, we've had a boy from Nigeria tune in every session. We only found out on Friday that he was from Nigeria because we were sending out pizzas to have a graduation, online graduation. And he says, I'm in Nigeria. How am I going to get a pizza? We were like, we never knew. <laughs> and we had young people sign up from as far away as Wales and Manchester. And this is the power of our work. And now we need to get out there by embracing technology. And COVID has been a blessing for us, even though we've lost people close to us. And it's been a very tough time. Situations like that present opportunities. And we're good at finding those opportunities and, and really going forward with that. So it's been a blessing in that respect. And now we have the dual approach of the face-to-face plus the virtual. Um, 
we're just in a really great place right now. We're entering another stratosphere in terms of what we're doing. Um, you know, even what I'm wearing, I've got this from New Era. They sent a whole bunch of stuff to us, a care package for us and our young people. Um, Instagram have given us 10K of ad credit to promote our work. Um, we've got a new, fe- uh, new feature called Guides, which no one else in the UK has got, only three other organisations. We're using that to educate young people around certain topics like Windrush, like Stop and Search. Um, we're really pushing, you know, Goldman Sachs, the investment from them and the long-term commitment. We're just in a very progressive place. And, you know, with what's happening in the world is a shift. There's a real critical consciousness shift in terms of the outlook. And as I said, COVID was a leveler where everyone felt the same in a, in a situation where they didn't have those, those shared traits and those shared experiences. So now people start to be more empathetic towards other people's plights. Wow, this, my neighbor doesn't even have food. They can't go to a food bank. Their mom is going out to work every day, even though now she's vulnerable. Oh, they passed away. And this is the stories that we've been sharing. And it's been, it's been so important to get back to the basic, you know, level and engagement of humanity. We don't talk anymore. We're all on our phones. We don't speak, we don't share experiences. And this is why this time is so powerful. And we've got to keep the momentum going. Well said, Sais, well said. And I think what's really important is the fact that you've all gained a lot of partnerships with, like you say, Instagram, Goldman Sachs, and I'm sure others will follow. It just reinforces the great work that you're doing. Organisations of that stature are not only giving their money, but also their time um, and their expertise to, to mentivity, which is really important. Just touching on that, I mean, so and I need to put this out, and I'm going to because people ask me, what does mentivity mean? And, and it came to me in a dream. Um, I had ideas of it in 2015. I ran a pilot project called Sportsmen, which is sports mentoring, which was predominantly my background, but I realized it was too exclusive. And the men in mentivity doesn't pertain to men at all or boys. It's actually mentoring activity. So the first name of, of mentivity was mentoring youth through positive activity, sports and education. So in my dream, it was mentoring activity and it just fused together and it was mentivity. So it's mentoring activity really, and that's what's so important. And that's that's the why the name is where it is. Awesome. Well done. And I want to touch on some of your more recent work. I know that you've been um, on Sky News, BBC News, Good Morning Britain, and a few other channels sharing your work that you're currently doing with new recruits to the police force. Can you share to us how that opportunity came about and what you're going to be doing with new recruits to the police force? Yeah, so on um, Tuesday the 5th of May, I was out delivering food to friends um, that had lost family members to COVID. And, you know, it's a very difficult time. And when someone loses someone, you want to try and help. You know, you send a message on my condolences. But me, I'm about trying to show people through love and actions. So I love to cook. Um, so I cooked some food for some friends and I went out to deliver to some friends. So after the first drop-off in Brixton, I was going to my other drop-off in South East London. And I saw two boys being stopped by the Met Police, you know, the big van and there was about 10 officers around them and they looked quite intimidating. So rather than just drive past, I stopped, wound down my window. I asked the boys directly, one white boy, one black boy, are you guys okay? And they said, yeah, we're okay. And they looked kind of shocked that someone had stopped. I said, all right, just making sure. So I wound up my window and I drove on. Now, I was fasting for Ramadan. Um, I'm not Muslim, but I've fasted for Ramadan for the last eight years, something which is very important to me to understand 
that I'm lucky that I can always eat and there are people out there that don't have that. And also for me spiritually, it's very, very enlightening for me and very powerful and a, a real month for reflection, which is important to me. Um, so I went to stop at the, the shop to get some dates to break my fast. So I got the dates, got back into my car. I was in my car for literally 45 seconds. I saw blue lights behind me, pulled over thinking it wasn't for me. It was for me. Police officers said, right, we're stopping you under Section 23 of the Misuse of Drugs Act. You look like you just did a drug deal. You pulled out from a side road. Your behavior was suspicious. I said, in 45 seconds, in under 45 seconds, you ascertained that I was a drug dealer. Let me tell you what I do. I was trying to tell him in a respectful way. I'm a man of the community. I've done these things. I run a mentoring organization. I'm trying to help you guys do your job. One of the police officers tried to manhandle me. I said, take your hands off me. I'll get out there. I'll, I will let you do guys do the search, but I'm going to film this now. So I documented the search and just the whole dialogue. It was, you know, a racially profiled stop, um, stereotypical. Um, it was dehumanizing. And I've been stopped over 30 times in my life, like 30 times stopping search in my life since the age of 14. I was assaulted by a police officer at the age of 14, just going home from school. So my view of the Met Police was very, very skewed, even before that, because obviously the, 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 the fractured relation that we've had since the, the wind rush and before that. So I, I actually hated the police for, for a long time. And anytime I, I did get stopped, my underlying injustice and what, you know, in that, that situation where I was assaulted, we took it to court. The CPS threw it out, even though we had CCTV footage, eyewitness and accounts, they said there wasn't, there was insufficient evidence to prosecute the officer. So I, then I was in court under a counterclaim for assaulting a police officer on a public order offense, which the, the first one was thrown out, the public order offense, I think stood. I was in court in my school uniform and I was just thinking I was going to go to prison, but I didn't do anything. So anytime I did get stopped by police, it was always a negative situation because of that underlying injustice that I faced. But this time was different. This time I'd felt empowered to educate these young officers and let them know that this is what I do and I'm trying to help you, but you're not going to treat me or other people like this in the community anymore. Like I refuse. So I made a vow in the video that I was going to get the Met Police to, to pay me to train officers such as them to work on their conscious bias, the racial, racially profiled, motivated stops, and also to understand the more cultural equity and how they speak to people. So we commenced that on, on Wednesday, just gone, Wednesday the 24th of June uh, at New Scotland Yard at headquarters. Launched that with um, 47 recruits. Uh, only 16 were allowed to do it because of um, COVID uh, social distancing. So we will now follow up. But I've got another seven sessions lined up with the police, a large body of work in terms of the outreach program uh, and building that relationship between the community and the police through events, uh, sporting events, educational events, and also to run roll out the Raising Aspirations project to highlight visibility of young people going into the organisation, not as bobbies on the beat, but around cybercrime, forensics, admin, whatever it may be, there's a role for us to in society, but we need to infiltrate these organisations which have been found to be institutionally racist. We, from the McPherson report, you know, we understand that the police have a culture which is based around institutional racism, and that needs to be changed. And we need to change it from within and challenge those views in an elegant way and make people feel uncomfortable about having these conversations so that they can be comfortable when they're carrying out their duties around stop and search. And we've seen a massive rise in, you know, for me, unlawful stop and search, handcuffing people, very aggressive brutality in some some instances, and it's not right. So we need to challenge that and we need to do it in the right way. There's a couple of things that come come out of that for me, Says 
is firstly out of such a negative situation and experiences that you've faced over 30 times as you say being stopped by the police even though you went through all those experiences you were still able to come out with a positive outcome which i think says a lot about you and your organization in, in terms of what it wants to achieve it's genuinely genuinely there to help the community as a whole um, the young people but also the police force in order to make sustainable change in our community so i think that's inspiring and the second point around it is about understanding your rights because you know you said that you were stopped and searched under section 23 is that correct yeah if you didn't know your rights you could not really protest or do anything so i think education piece for young people is, is critical as well yeah. And you mentioned the McPherson report. I think that report was produced in 1999, an inquiry yes. following Stephen Lawrence's death. And that report, as you've already mentioned, said that the police in this country is institutionally racist. Do you think much progress has been made over the last 20 years? And are you angered, frustrated, or are there young people that you work with angered or frustrated by the lack of progress that's being made? Yeah, I think if we made the progress that we think that we did, we wouldn't be having these conversations today. The fact is we haven't made them and we need long-term solutions to long-term, long-standing problems which are linked to racism and stereotypical views of the black community. And this, as you said, it comes back down to education. Many of these new recruits are police officers from outside the community coming in with their stereotypical views of black people, gangs, drugs, violence. You know, these are the things that are portrayed in the media and we don't control the narrative. We don't control the media. You can't control your narrative. You know, the Jewish do it very well with the Anti-Defamation League. And this is something that we need to have as black people because we need to protect our people in the community that are doing positive things. And this is why it's so important to share stories. And this is why when I educate the police, I've told them my story from an eight-year-old in the Ellsbury estate to the current day and all the things I've, I've faced and understanding that, look, this is my journey and look at what I'm doing in society. There are so many other people like me doing this. And the thing is that you're tarring everybody with the same brush and because of a minority. A minority in our community are doing negative things, but you've got to understand the reasons why they are doing these things. It's not by default, it is by design. When you don't have anything in society, when you people that do not have are going to try and get because they're in a capitalist society. So in essence, the things that they're doing are wrong, but their outlook isn't wrong. What we need to do at Mentality is educate them how they can hustle in a legit way in business have that entrepreneurial mindset. Like if you're going to sell drugs on the street, that you are you're running a business. So let's bring that to the business world and you can be a high profile businessman. You could be someone that sells products, you know, which are legal. It's the same outlook. And this is the problem that we have is that the education system is designed to fail us. Policies are designed to fail us and impact. You've got corporations like Uber, Google, not paying their taxes. There's a deficit in the community. That should be filtering down corporate social responsibility. But if you don't educate yourself around these things and you don't demand these things and make these people accountable and the government accountable, you're never going to see the change that you want to see. So this is why it's important to showcase the work that we're doing with young people, but also to empower young people to do the things that we're doing right now at 37. There should be children doing this at 18, at 17. There's a young potential MP and there's going to be a barrister, a guy called Atian. Love him. Like he is phenomenal. And Atian is someone who's very progressive and knows what he wants to do because he's passionate about it and it's been shown that this is where you can go. We do that with every young person. We're going to reduce serious youth violence. We're going to reduce instances of mental health. We're going to reduce instances of, of abuse because we're working earlier with these young people and giving them 
time to make those differences. And young people are angry. This is why you see these, these outbursts towards the police, you see these riots, because there's underlying tensions that have never been addressed. Never been addressed. But enough is enough now. The time is now. We're going to make those changes. We're going to come together as a community, as a collective community, and get what we deserve, and get that investment and that time from the government and hold them accountable, because that's why we're, we're having the problems we're having now. Austerity and these old boys clubs, you know, from Oxbridge, they want to keep money in their community. We need to have, keep money in our community, especially the black community, because that's why you had the black pound there yesterday, because we're not investing in our own. And because we don't have our own economic foundation, we can't then build. We can't have our own schools. We can't educate. We can't provide employment. You understand? And this is why it's so important. And these messages have actually been coming from decades prior as well. So if you look at Malcolm X, um, MLK, they had the same similar messages in the United States, particularly Malcolm X in Black Empowerment. And I think Malcolm X is a figure who is badly misunderstood by many in society. I think with Malcolm X and what people need to understand is that he wasn't afraid to say that he was wrong. And that's why I respect him so much. And his, reading his autobiography and Muhammad Ali's autobiography, those were what changed my life um, and their outlook. And for Malcolm X, particularly in the last year of his life where he was traveling Africa and he realized that he got it wrong in terms of the message of Islam, where he said that it should be inclusive for all, that being separate and being you know, segregated in terms of the people and just focusing on black people, I, I was wrong. I got it wrong. Martin Luther King said the same thing in his last year. Have this approach has been wrong in the, in the last interview that he did. It's gone viral now. I got it wrong. I've integrated my people into a burning house. We should have been setting up our own shop. We should have been demanding our reparations. We should have been bringing together the nation state of Africa so that we can unify people, but also then we can have reparations because black people, the African diaspora, do not have a nation state. That's why you can't get reparations. It won't be validated in the world court because you don't have a flag, you don't have an allegiance, you don't have a common cause. So when Malcolm X, people talk about by any means necessary, all these different things, which are very, very pivotal. But in the last years of his life, his, his whole aspect changed where it was right. We need to be inclusive because we have one race. It's human race. So using the term racism, we shouldn't even be using that anymore because there's one race. So racism alludes to someone being second class, being less than which is obviously us, and that's historically what it has been. But we're not. We've, we've been oppressed, but brought so much to this world, more than people can even realise and even know. Every single invention you think has been done by pretty much people from the African diaspora. Absolutely. And I would recommend people to watch a documentary on BBC4 by James Baldwin. Um, oh, yeah. And the reason why I say that is because you mentioned about uh, Malcolm X and MLK having similar views towards the end of their life. Uh, towards the end of yeah. their life. Because at the beginning, there were, there were stark differences about how Malcolm X's view of the world and MLK's view of the world. And that was partly um, because of their upbringing and their experiences. Mm-hmm. But towards the end of their lives, in, this, in, the, in the 60s, actually, they're... Blind very very similar and they were saying pretty much the same thing so it's really interesting to see that that is not really known by by the public at large unfortunately one point i wanted to ask you say so you've 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 set up um an organization called mentivity as we've discussed you're working with young people what have been the key learnings throughout your your life your background and even to this day that you'd like to share with with young people to give them the hope and to give them 
that passion to keep moving forward despite all of the challenges? Yeah, I mean, I have a saying when I do my keynote speeches and my motivational talks, the one underlying theme is passion, perseverance and dedication. So find your passion, persevere and dedicate yourself to it no matter what. And perseverance has been a key thing in my life because you need to put yourself outside your comfort zone. You need to be receptive to learning and being uncomfortable. Get used to being uncomfortable because that's the way when you're going to see the most change. If you're comfortable in your comfort zone, you're never going to see change. You know, I use the analogy when you drive a car, like we drive cars every day, you're not really going to improve your driving skills if you're not challenging yourself. So if you do the same thing every day, driving, okay, I'm going to drive at 20 miles an hour, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, it's the same process and it becomes autonomous. If you continue to do that in life, you're just going to live out an existence where you must push yourself. Persevere when you get those obstacles. Dedicate yourself to something. Whether it changes over time, dedicate yourself to something. Have a cause, have a belief, but be open to learning and listening. And if you do that, you're never going to steer yourself wrong. I tell you that, I guarantee. Because I've done things in my life that people don't even know and don't even believe. You know, I represented Barbados um, internationally for football at the Caribbean Cup. You know, as I said, I played professional football. I've done keynote speeches in Canada, you know, six years ago, which basically was the precursor to mentivity and really putting myself outside my comfort zone, opening a conference with 350 people in Canada, two years running. Like I was out mentivity. I've got a catering business now. You know, I've coached so many football players in the Premier League and in the Bundesliga. Jaden Sancho is the most notable one, coaching for four or five years. Reese Nelson of Arsenal, Tammy Abraham, Adamola Lookman. All these boys came through the, and played for the Soviet uh, London Youth Games team. So I've done so many different things, as well as mentor thousands of young people, give support. I've done so many different things, but it's about sharing those experiences and being confident that, right, what I'm doing is right. If it feels right within your, your heart, do it. If it doesn't, then don't do it. So I will say that you just have to find your passion, persevere no matter what, and dedicate yourself to it. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sace. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on. And we've discussed so many different topics um, from all around the world. So it's been um, a genuine delight to have you on. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thanks to Sais for joining us and sharing his insights and experiences. There was so much that was covered in today's conversation. The main takeaway for me was the importance of education. We must work with young people who are our future to ensure they are best equipped to not only deal with the challenges that life will undoubtedly bring, but hopeful about the immense possibilities that lie in front of them tapping into their passions, interests and talents. Our work should be led by young people. As a sector, we should always be willing to listen and learn from young people to ensure we are devising programmes to meet their needs and ambitions. We at Charity Chat would like to thank the thousands of employees and volunteers within the sector that are continuing to serve their beneficiaries at such a difficult time. Thank you very much for listening and that leaves me to thank our corporate sponsors Giant Squid Audio Lab sponsoring our podcast kit Magda Aksumit for our website design RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images and Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. <laughs>